Disclaimer. The 24 Shades of Blue Cold Case Edition series is about real ongoing homicide investigations. The following conversation may be disturbing to some people and is not recommended for all ages. Please take a moment and decide if you would like to continue listening or watching. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello, everybody. Welcome to 24 Shades of Blue Cold Case Edition. I'm your host of the series, Andy O'Brien. Our second cold case we're going to be discussing is the case of Cassandra Doe. Today, I have the pleasure, again, of being with Toronto Police's lead homicide detective, Steve Smith. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Andy. Today's case, uh, Cassandra Doe, uh, what were the the, the last moments uh, mapped out in, uh, in of Cassandra's life? can't even imagine what Cassandra was going through at the time. Obviously, she was alone in her apartment and she would have had a very large man, most likely on top of her with his hands around her neck, choking the life out of her. She must have known at that point that she may not survive this. I can't even imagine what was going through her head. A horrible incident. And, you know, once again, the the whole point of, of this show and, and us teaming up is to, is to bring some closure for the family and find this, this individual who did this. Um, when I look at the, at the pictures here that you provided, we have the bathtub in that, uh, Cassandra was, was found. Um, this is the space, I guess the, her, her apartment and this individual, there is a DNA, there is a DNA profile that matches a prior, assault. Can we talk a little bit about um, what the first assault was? Absolutely. The first assault was uh, our offender called and attended a, uh, a brothel. Um, he was looking for a, a sex trade worker. He, was, he actually named a sex trade worker that he was looking for. He attended this address, again, right in the same area, a little bit north of where Cassandra was found. When he arrived, the worker he was looking for wasn't there but there was another sex trade worker in the apartment. And at that point he proceeded to sexually assault her. He pulled out some handcuffs and was going to bind her, but she was able to fight her way and escape, lock herself in the bathroom and able to call police at which point he fled, but he did leave his DNA behind from the sexual assault. So that very well had that person not escaped. I think it's safe to say that, that that person may have uh, met their demise as well. We don't know but it's possible. There's, there's a very good likelihood of that. I mean, judging by his future uh, murder that he committed, there was a good chance that that person survived by her actions at that time. So let's talk about how did this, how did this murder uh, unfold? You know, what do you think happened? Cassandra, she was a, a transgender sex trade worker. She advertised both on the internet as well as in the, the newspapers at the time. Um, she made no bones about the fact that she was transgender. So we aren't thinking that this was um, a mistaken, something mistaken that the offender came to the apartment thinking. So what we believe happened is, is he had saw the ads. Um, whatever was in his mind at that time, whether he was going to go and pay for sex, whether he was going to go and sexually assault Cassandra, or whether he went there with the intent of murder, I guess we'll never know unless we actually find the person and he tells us. But he made a, a phone call to her and set up an actual time for her date. So she'd set up. She was ready for him. But one thing about Cassandra is she was very discerning on her clients. So she would vet the clients. If she knew them before, she only had a standard list that she would... Usually, if she was bringing someone new in, she would vet that person. So we're, we're believing that this person was uh, 
was very articulate in the way that he spoke to her, that he was able to talk her into actually seeing him for the first time. Now, when he showed up, we don't know what happened from there. We don't know if she decided that she didn't like the feeling of this person, whether he did something to put her on edge. But we believe that that he forced his way in and eventually he ended up murdering her, sexually assaulting her and murdering her. And what do we know about the perpetrator? We know um, both because we've done phenotyping as well as uh, the fact that we do have a live victim. She was able to describe the offender. She described him as a black male and very large. She said like, like overly large. She was saying, you know, six, five, six, six, 230 pounds. So a very, very large man and that he had access to handcuffs that he had handcuffs with him. So we're not sure if he would have used those in a job or maybe he had purchased the handcuffs and he was bringing them specifically for binding devices. We don't really know that. Okay. And I think, um, do we have an idea when this, let's talk about the location and when. So it was 2003, August 25th, um, when Cassandra was murdered. Uh, the area is up on Gloucester Street in the area of, between Gloucester um, and Church area. And the first assault was up around Jarvis and Bloor area. So all in the same area, all in the, the downtown, um, the, the north end of downtown, just south of Bloor. And both in the same area. I don't know much else to tell you about that. It's, uh, it's just interesting that both the cases are linked. And in the and time was, it was, it was 2003, correct? It was 2003, yeah. And the, the, the sexual assault was actually from 1997. Okay, so this is in, in the same period. So this person may have, uh, hard to say, once again, speculation, you know, did this person live down there? You know, did they just come back in as, as a predator into that area? Um, you know, it's very hard to say. What do, you, what do you think? Do you think the person lived down and around the area or do you think they just frequented there? You know, our initial thought was that maybe he worked down in that area, may have lived elsewhere, but he very well could have lived in that area as well. I mean, that would be, you know, we would think that someone from the the area would have been able to identify him, maybe say, you know, this is this is the person um, that could have committed these offenses. But uh, it could be anything, right? This person could, he could have been living uh, by otherwise an, a normal life. Um, he could have been working. He could have had a family. We, we just don't know. Um, we don't know what was going through his head when he committed these offenses. Yeah, because I mean... You know, with the last assault, um, it seemed like they just escaped. They were lucky to to get out of there. Absolutely. Um, and then, you know, the, I guess how did, the question is, you know, in a building like that, it was a low-rise building we talked about. So low-rise building, what time approximately was it? Well, the, the date was set up for about 4.30 that evening. 4.30 p.m. Yeah, but unfortunately... Cassandra had one of her relatives living with her and he would leave during the dates. And usually the dates were half an hour to an hour and then she would call him and he would come back to her apartment. Yeah. Um, he didn't, she, he wasn't called. He waited a few hours to give her some time in case something else was going on. He knew she had a further date that evening set up as well. Okay. Um, so eventually in the evening they went back, but I mean, we believe that she was probably killed in that time frame, in and around 4.30 in the afternoon when the, the date showed up. So 4.30, you have somebody that's noticeable that doesn't really blend in. You're six foot six, <laughs> no matter what color you are, six foot six, 230 pounds. You're a big dude. You're walking in somewhere. Um, there was no cameras in this building at that time for some reason. Nowadays, you would probably be uh, 
That's right. Be caught reasonably quickly. Um, but you guys interviewed probably a lot of people in that building, I would assume. And nobody saw anybody of this description in the elevator with them, waiting for an elevator, coming back down, walking by them. Secu was there security in the building? No, no, there was no security. But nobody recalled this individual, this, you know, linebacker from the Buffalo Bills walking in and out and nobody recalled seeing this person. Yeah, unfortunately not. I mean, I'm with you. If, if someone of, that's six foot six, six foot five, they're noticeable. Like you notice it, that this is a big individual. Especially when, you know, you hear about a murder in your building and you walk by this individual, you may not have thought anything of it at the time, but then, you know, that kind of a, a description is put out and it's no one has ever called you. No, nobody's ever come forward on that. And I mean, hopefully with this podcast that someone's listening and it may tweak them to be like, you know what? I lived in that building at that time and I did see that individual in there. Whether it was once, whether it was twice, we don't know. But he was in that building. And I remember I remember this person, if they could tell us anything about him. A hundred percent. I mean, this is how we're going to solve these cold cases by people coming forward, you That's know? Right. And um, I think the other question, and you and I were talking about this before the show, are these coincidences, you know, these two cases, uh, was this, uh, is this a, you know, a, a, a repeat offender, a serial rapist or sexual assault, uh, an individual that, that commits sexual assaults? Is this, you know, obviously speculation when you look at, you know, is this his first murder? Is there other murders that this individual has committed here or elsewhere? Who knows if he's even here or another country or even alive? I mean, it's hard to tell. Um, but what's the coincidence, um, you know, with this being the last you've heard of this individual? What do you think has happened to this person? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say, right? I mean, you, you commit two offenses like this, you would think that this person has committed another offense. But obviously, we've ran this through our national data bank. This person hasn't been convicted of a, an offense where his DNA, he was required to provide his DNA, at least in Canada. We've sent this DNA through foreign countries as well, just to make sure, like you were saying, in case he had went to a different uh, country. Yeah. We ran it through other databases. We have no hits on this DNA. So we're not sure, did this person completely change his lifestyle? I mean, it is possible, as I've told you before, we have 42 cases where we believe we have the offender's DNA and we have no hits on our national data bank. Yeah. So when you actually, I mean, none of us would ever know this, but if, if you actually take another person's life, is that enough to scare you straight if you're not a complete psychopath? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. That's what we discussed. I mean, and, and, you know, if you have, and like, you know, other cases that I've talked to, um, you know, around, um, different associations, you know, are these people aware now that if they screw up, if they do commit a crime and their DNA is taken, has it scared them? You know, has it, like you said, has it scared them completely straight? Unless you're a, you know, a Bernardo or one of these guys that, uh, you know, that doesn't really have a conscience, uh, you know, I wonder if that's the case. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I'm sure that there's a large number of people that are out there that are worried their past is going to come back to haunt them. Because as we said, I mean, in the, the 80s and early 90s, people were leaving their DNA all over at crime scenes because really it, it wasn't a thing. It was irrelevant. Right? It didn't matter. So, but now they're living a different life or they're, they're living in a different country or, or whatever they're doing in the back of their head, they have to be knowing that they were at this scene and that they left their DNA there. 
And especially with the advent of genetic genealogy, these people, they can't be living a, a peaceful life. I'll tell you that because at any point there could be a knock on their door and it's, Hey, yeah. you're going to, you're going to stand trial for what you did back in the eighties or the nineties. Yeah. And I wonder too, you know, a lot of these cases, um, whether it's in a, you know, a holding tank or someone's been somewhere, a lot of these people talk about it with other people. Um, in your experience, what's the likelihood of somebody telling somebody? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things that, that we rely on. We believe that in all these cases that somebody else knows. We don't believe that there's, there's any case. And I mean, obviously, there's an outlier in, in any case. But we believe that somebody knows who the killer is on every single one of these cases. In this case, we actually know that there's somebody that knows and they don't want to come forward. We've tried to interview them. They've refused to provide us information. We know that that person knows and we're appealing to them as well as anybody else to just provide us this name. Again, we aren't looking for for witnesses, we're looking for a name of the offender and we'll do the investigation and we'll bring this person before justice. And, you know, I think there's a common, uh, we see it all the time in a lot of these murders. Um, strangulation seems to be, um, you know, a similarity with quite a few of the, the female sex workers. Um, why is that? And is that standard, do you think? Or you just hear about it all the time as the most common? Well, I mean, it's, it would be speculation on my part, but I mean, I believe that if you're looking to, to sexually assault a sex trade worker, you're probably going to hold her down. He's probably going to, to get on top of her. And at that point for in their twisted mind, the next logical thing is to just put their, their hands around their throat, right? They're already on top of her. They're already dominating her. Now they're going to, to humiliate her by, by choking her last breath out of her. Um, during a sexual assault. I mean, there couldn't be anything more horrific than, than those two events. Yeah. And also too, I think it plays into, you know, uh, less DNA potentially, uh, it would be probably qu obviously quieter than shooting somebody or potentially, you know, stabbing or other, other means where someone could still scream. Um, so I think probably a lot of those play into each other, I would imagine. Absolutely. I mean, obviously we've had, um, or we have cases where people have been sexually assaulted and stabbed, um, sexually assaulted and strangled. So there's, there's no hard and fast rule, but we believe that the, the domination um, lends itself to that, lends itself to the, the, the ease of, of choking someone at that point. And so I think, you know, uh, she was also known, so Cassandra was also known as Tula and uh, used to use a website to, to book her clients. Tell us a little bit about the website. What do we know about the website? What the, the name, the, is there any information that people would typically put? And also, do we know anything about the individual, um, posting or calling specific websites or, or phone lines? Yeah. So, I mean, it was basically just a web page and it was, um, it was developed for the sex trade workers in, in the community to use. Um, there was a number of people that posted online. It was directed specifically to a certain community. They were able to provide pictures. Uh, the workers were able to provide okay. pictures online so that possible clients could look and, and, and decide who they wanted to, to attend with. Um, but what Cassandra did, um, 
was provide her home number. So it was basically no contact through the web page. It was basically her number was there. Someone would call her from a pay phone, set up a date, and then they would come buzz her from downstairs, which would ring her home phone. I mean, these days you probably wouldn't even have a home phone, right? Everything would be tracked through a cell phone, which would give us more evidence. But unfortunately, she was utilizing her her home phone at the time. And so once again, something else you brought up that sounds like you could definitely hold a lot of uh, a lot of weight to it is, you know, this person didn't maybe identify uh, everything about themselves. They got to the door. She said no. And that person, like you said, said yes. And then it went really bad really quickly. Yeah, that is a possibility. I mean, like you said, Cassandra was by all accounts, very discerning in the clients that she allowed into her apartment. Um, She had a standard list of clients that she allowed. She very rarely went off that list. So this person must have talked his way at least to her door. And what happened at that point? We don't know. Maybe she looked and was like, whoa, this is a mountain of a man. I don't know if I want to be alone with him in the apartment. We just don't know. Um, But whatever happened at that time, he obviously progressed to, to sexual assault and murder. And I think, um, you know, just from a clue standpoint, is there anything that was found at the murder scene, her apartment? Is there anything you found belonging to the, to the perpetrator? Is there any uh, marks on her uh, from fighting back? What, what clues do you have? Obviously, we were able to recover his DNA profile, which is our biggest clue. But other than that, there wasn't really anything left that provided us any evidentiary value. Um, do you know how old he is? Do you know how old, roughly? Do we have a? We don't know. I mean, she, she gave us a rough, a rough age, um, late twenties, early thirties at the time in ninety so seven. So now so, he would he would be what in his forties potentially, yeah, right? Absolutely, absolutely. But I mean, that again, that's a rough guess, right? I mean, he could have been anything from teens to forties. We we don't know. Um, this was her while she was being sexually assaulted, this is her observations of this person. And I guess, you know, the, the possibility that DNA evidence uh, that was collected from Sandra may have matched DNA from another rape victim from 97. Is that concerning that this could be a repeat offender? Do you, do, do you feel that there may have been women, other women that did not come forward? Um, or could this person be picking up where they left off in another country even? Because the one thing I've learned about, you know, obviously you're the head of the homicide squad and I, uh, and I deal with a lot of, you know, Toronto police, FBI. And, and one thing that I notice about a lot of these individuals is they don't stop it too. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a concern to us as well. Right. But unfortunately at this time, um, with all the sexual assaults and all the homicides that we've resubmitted evidence for, we haven't had any other cases that match um, forensically. So we can't say unequivocally that there's more. Could there be, as you said, could there be other sexual or sex workers that were assaulted by this male and allowed to live and they never complained? Absolutely yeah. there could. Um, could there be others where he didn't leave his DNA behind? Absolutely there could. It's all things that we take into account and look at and and see what we can do with it. I mean, we have the Vi class, um, method through through the Ontario Provincial Police. So if we have anything that that has similar MOs, we usually get notified and then we'll look into that as well. Um, we have our, our serial predator, uh, serial offenders, the, the predator yeah. investigations. Um, 
we look at all those. We, we match up everything that we possibly can through Ontario, through uh, Canada. If this person has moved to another um, jurisdiction or another country, we've tried to send the DNA through. So there's no DNA from other countries. Um, could there be other victims anywhere? It's always a possibility. But at this point, we don't have anything to forensically say that, yes, that there is other victims. And with Cassandra, was she sexually assaulted? She was, yes. She was. Yes. And I think, um, you know, in terms of, you know, other murder victims uh, in this fashion, there's obviously um, other women in this country that have been strangled to death and murdered, especially in this profession. And you have to, it makes you wonder, you know, is this person... uh, maybe just hadn't left their DNA on, on others, you know, maybe you never know. And it's gotta be something that, uh, you know, is obviously something that we want to try and catch this individual. Um, if they're still out there, what's your gut, what's your gut on this individual? I'm kind of torn. I'm not sure if, if maybe he left the country or he has just, he had a job at the time. I mean, if he was carrying handcuffs, was he a security officer? Was he in law enforcement? Um, was he, did he work as a bouncer at a club? These are things that we don't know, but maybe his yeah. profession progressed. Maybe he got married, had some kids. We, we, we don't know these things. Um, but for, for whatever reason, he has not came back up onto our radar. Maybe he's deceased. Yeah. Maybe something happened. Maybe he was living a high risk lifestyle and something else happened in between. We don't know. Um, but unfortunately we have not had his DNA um, that we're able to match up in these cases. In terms of the general public on this case, I mean, anybody living in the area between, I guess, even for including the other case, you know, 97 to 2003, there's, let us know anything that, that you would want from the general public. We worked with the, uh, the Sex Trade Workers Alliance on this. Um, we went through all the bad date books. Anybody that, that any of the sex trade workers had provided, whether it was licenses, phone numbers, uh, names. We went through all of that to see if we could match this up. We've collected a a lot of DNA in this case as well, and nothing has come back. Um, So if anybody knows or anybody thinks that they know who this person is, just provide us a name again. In these cases where we have DNA, we'll do the work on it. We just need a name. We just need someone that we can go and, and get their DNA and match it up to to the crime scene. So all we need is, is a name. It's amazing how, you know, far technology has come. And I think what a lot of people forget about these cold cases, you guys are working overtime and you, you, you go above and beyond trying to, to bring closure for these families and these cases. Um, but the technology just wasn't there back when a lot of these cold cases uh, happened. And people forget that there wasn't the level of DNA. There wasn't the big one is the video too. There wasn't as much video. What's some of the difficulties you guys have? I think that's important to talk about here. What are, what are some of the main, you know, the, the main, the main difficulties that you guys have in terms of, you know, solving these? Well, I mean, it's a double edged sword, right? Today in today's date, we have video, we have cell phones, we have, I mean, everybody has cameras, right? Whether they're, yeah. they're small cameras, whether they're nanny cams, whether they're full blown surveillance systems, um, every phone number that comes in on your cell phone, it's tracked. Um, e- there's, there's cameras in the areas, everywhere you go, 
you're on someone's camera, whether it's someone has, has a camera over their garage or whether it's an apartment that has cameras or, or the store down yeah. the street or McDonald's, everybody has cameras. So if you're in the area and we're able to do a canvas, we'll find you somewhere on camera. Back at the time, that wasn't as prevalent. So we don't have that. But what we do have is people now are aware of DNA. They, they're aware that they're being tracked. They're aware that there's DNA. They aren't leaving their DNA. The one good thing that we have from these cold cases that gives us a leg up is people weren't conscious of DNA actually being an investigative tool at the time. So they left their DNA without any worry of the fact that I may be caught because I left my DNA at the scene, which the advances in science that we've come through now, we can, we can profile with DNA from the, the head of a pin. We had tiny amounts. Every six months, DNA is improving. We're coming up with different methods to, to utilize this DNA. So what they left 20, 30, 40 years ago is now coming back to haunt yeah. them because of the advances in science. So it, it's kind of a double-edged sword. There's, there's both in the old times and in the new times, there's investigative techniques that we're able to use that, that, that help us solve these cases. And have you, 100%, I mean, have you, with with this particular case with Cassandra, have you spoke with her family? Tell me a little bit about her uh, her family, your friends. Who, who have you been in contact with about this, uh, this specific case? Yeah, we've spoken with her brothers and uh, they're obviously, they they want this solved. I mean, they're still wondering like what happened. Um, Cassandra was, was very loving with her family. Um, she was helping them out. She was uh, pro- providing money to, to people. She was just a good person, just a good hearted person. Um, and by all means, she was making a lot of money doing what she was doing. Um, and she was using that to help her family. Yeah, it's really, really a sad uh, situation. And, and I think that, um, you know, anything that our show here can do to help um, bring these individuals forward, um, you know, the, the family deserves it. Cassandra deserves it. And, um, you know, I, I think that uh, if anybody has any information, they call you, call Crime Stoppers. They can call you guys at the Homicide Division. They can even reach out with a name to Obianax if they'd like to stay completely anonymous uh, as well. So it's it's endless. Is there anything else that you that you would ask of the public? No, I agree with you 100%. Any way that they can get the information to us, we don't care how it comes through. We don't need to know who you are providing the information. We just need that name. So any way that you want to do it, any way that you feel good about doing it, please feel free. Just give us that name and we'll solve these cases. Well, thanks very much uh, for joining us today, Steve. Um, Please, once again, if you can bring any uh, closure to the families, uh, you know, in these cold cases, uh, we beg you to please uh, call the Homicide Squad, uh, Crime Stoppers, and even here at Obianax, feel free to just leave a name. Uh, Thanks for being with us, Steve, and have a good day, everyone.